Welcome back to Diversity on Fire. My name's Nina. I'm from Iowa. And this is Heather from New Hampshire. Our goal at Diversity on Fire is to inspire you to think and act differently. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations about controversial issues on all types of diversity-related topics. Today, we have special guest Jason Bradley. Jason is known to those of us who love him as Jake. Last week's Firestarter covered the broad subject of religion and more specifically our experiences with belief systems and how they have influenced us. We've invited Jake, a Christian pastor from the Midwest, to share some of his thoughts on Christianity as he experiences it and how it informs his conscience in areas of ministry, Bible education, and real-life applications. Jake studied biblical and theological studies at North Park University. He's also a scientist. He studied zoology at Iowa State University, an adventurer, and in a former life, a rock star. Welcome, Jake Bradley. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is super wonderful to connect with you all and have this uh, conversation. Real looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Zoology, I'm going to have to hear more about that. <laughs> so to start off, though, um, I mean, we're really interested. So we we tend to pair our conversations with our previous fire starter, previous fire starter that we uh, talked about religion. Being in your position, can you give us a little bit of an idea on how you got there in life in terms of what drew you to that position and kind of a little storyline there? Yeah. So um, I was born into um, a religious home to a Christian family. My dad was actually a pastor. And so I kind of came by it naturally. It was uh, the things that were just taught to us. I was brought up in it. And I think it served me pretty well, um, you know, as a kid. But I think there is that time with, you know, the religion that is passed down to you by your ancestors or by your parents. And, you know, you got to kind of come to terms with that. Usually when you leave home, you go to college and you hear much different ideas. And I would say, yeah, it seems like a lot of people uh, would lose their faith, especially when they went to college, or maybe they had to hear something different that kind of um, is not following the narrative. I have found, you know, when I went through all those things that, yeah, there were many times when I had to give up my religion. Um, you know, many people refer to them as a crisis or faith or uh, like a dark night of the soul. And I've had many, many of those. And I think to me, that's been really, really helpful is to kind of being able to learn um, and have an, a, just kind of an expansion of religion. You know, you can call it expanding of consciousness. Um, and it has been really good for me. And I feel like now that my task, um, you know, really as a pastor now is to, I think, to help people. I think there are um, some really painful things about religion. Um, when it's not done well, it is it can be very stifling and even uh, cause hurt and damage to people. Um, and so I feel like my job is to help people to uh, not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so trying to maybe reinterpret uh, some of the things. And I think religion um, at its core means to like re-ligament, uh, like to reattach. And so if religion is working at its best, um, it is to help reconnect things that have been lost. But we can get into maybe some reasons why that doesn't always happen. But if religion is doing what it's supposed to be doing, uh, it, is a, it is a way to view 
the world that is reconnecting things. So reattaching like ligaments and sinews. And so, yeah, I went to seminary. Um, a lot of times people call that um, a cemetery because a lot you go to seminary and you lose your faith because you learn all these tools about critical historical method. I learned Greek and Hebrew and you learn all these things um, and you learn about myth and mythology. And that can be very uh, difficult if you have a very shallow or immature faith. Um, that can be really hard for people to go to seminary and learn all these kind of nuance and complexities. But yeah, I went there to get the training and that was really helpful. I went to North Park Theological Seminary in uh, downtown Chicago, and that was a really good experience for me. And and so now, yeah, I'm a pastor at a church. I was a youth pastor for most of my life. Really loved kids and youth and helping them kind of navigate some of these uh, difficult things in life. And uh, just the last three years ago, I was at the same church for about 20 years. I was the youth pastor there. And um, three years ago, I became the lead pastor at a church here in uh, Joliet, Illinois. That's awesome. a long time. I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize you'd done it that long. Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's kind of been kind of been my my life. I mean, I started out, you know, as a scientist, I was in zoology. I went to Iowa State University. Um, so Nina, I'm pretty sure that you went to Iowa City. So I don't know if we can actually be having this conversation right now, right? As sworn enemies. <laughs> just only, just only sometime, just sometime. Okay. But I went to, to Iowa State and um, yeah, I was really, I love science. Um and I was in zoology. I was going to be a, a vet or a doctor. Um, but then I found out that I'm highly squeamish when it comes to like blood and dissecting. And I'm like, well, this is just not going to work. This is not going to work. So um, I was in zoology. Uh, and then I decided to go into ministry, which, you know, is kind of like a zoo, right? I mean, anytime you're working with people, <laughs> it's kind of like a zoo. So I feel like uh, it was a very clear path forward for me from science, zoology, and ministry. So I think it's really interesting. And I really appreciate that you're um, so transparent about the fact that you have struggled in the past and fallen off um, of your religious path or, or fallen off of your faith or however you want to put it. And I think that's probably, as you mentioned, more common than not. So how do you feel like you were able to reconnect with that? Do you think that there was something in your past, whether that be just a really strong family foundation or just something that about how you learned about it that brought you back each time where it wouldn't necessarily bring others back? Yeah. So, you know, I think there is this, this faulty understanding that if you have doubt that that you don't have faith. And so, you know, we have this false dichotomy um, that where there's this, if you doubt, then you don't have faith. And I would say, as I learned that that is actually not truth. Uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. And I would say they're actually, they, they go hand in hand. They're kind of like a love story. The opposite of faith to me is fundamentalism or uh, certainty. And so, I mean, we, we know this concept um, from a lot of different areas, even in psychology or in education, you know, they call them these, these spirals, you know. So you learn something at five years old, and it's true that how you understand it as a five-year-old. And then you learn, you have a whole bunch of life experiences. And 10, maybe you come back to that same concept. And it's still true, but there's much more nuance and depth. And so you kind of transcend and include 
your previous understanding, but now you can fill it out and have um, maybe greater understanding and, and uh, different ways to apply it. And so I always refer to faith as like a double helix. So I'll kind of tie in faith and science together. Um, you know, from DNA, we have the double helix, kind of like that spiral of the proteins, you know, that is, is encodes all of life. And so there's this double helix of faith. And on one side, you have doubt. And on the other side of that helix, you have belief. And those like intertwine. And there's this, there's this infinite dance between belief and doubt. And that's actually what makes faith. And so if you actually have the absence of doubt, I would say that then that's impossible. There's no life. You can't have a faith that brings life if you have the absence of doubt. And we all know people uh, that, you know, kind of know it all that feel like, well, no, this is the answer. This is the, the right way. And I call that the sin of certainty. And there, there's nothing in life that is 100% certain. And I think we can get it to approximate truth and we can feel certain for a time. But then new information comes along or we have these new experiences and it challenges. And what we believed before still might be true, but now we, we see it um, differently or, or more uh, a deeper perspective. And so I think learning that, um, I think when I went to seminary and then obviously just having relationships with people who are different than you that believe so much differently and yeah, then people I love, and I can't say, well, you know, you're wrong, uh, you're completely wrong, or you're an idiot. That just doesn't make sense. And so I think, yeah, just having relationships with people and trying to love people where where they're at. I love that. I was just going to say, I feel like you're speaking to me directly, because everything <laughs> you just said is all of the little pieces that I've always struggled with when you place religion as a title on somebody is the um, idea that you can judge others, not accept them. The ultimate, the fundamentalism. I feel like there's a lot of discrimination within, you know, certain things. And that probably comes more with the fundamentalism. But everything that you just said, I just, I wish that, and maybe there are, and I just don't know them, but there were more people like you because that is the kindness, the faith. That's what I think religion is supposed to be. Yeah. And that, you know, so to me, there's, um, I would say, a, maybe a philosophy that has really helped me out. Again, you know, that there were these things that I would believe, and I'm trying to now lead as a pastor. And then people in my church believe very different. And it doesn't matter on any topic, you know, just people believe different things. And maybe I would consider that, you know, unhealthy or immature or even wrong. And I'm like, well, how do I how do I love people that I disagree with? And so there, there was a, a kind of a philosophy um, that has really helped me. Um, there's different names for it. Uh, it can be called uh, spiral dynamics or integral philosophy um, or consciousness theory. So I know you guys talked some about consciousness, but uh, that has been really helpful to me. Like, so in Christianity, we would call it um, maybe spiritual maturity. But to me, it's all getting at the same truth is that, you know, Christ, you know, I understand this through 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 Jesus. So like the Christ consciousness is that there there is a, we are trying to grow in consciousness, greater understanding and greater love. And I think Jesus really did that. Um, he was able to love people so different than him and also people who really wish to do him harm and, and ultimately succeeded. But we have to grow up in these things. Like I was saying that, that 
there's that uh, that dynamic, that growing consciousness, um, that spiral dynamic, kind of like the double helix. And so um, you you learn these things, and maybe you know you figured out um, something, or you feel like, oh, I don't believe that anymore. And so, kind of a, a big one for me is like women in ministry. I kind of grew up uh, kind of in the Baptist tradition, and they would say, well, no, the Bible is very clear that that women can't be pastors. And I just accepted that. But then as I got older and I, and I went to seminar and I learned different ways to read the Bible and I was able to have a more critical eye, I'm like, hmm, I actually, the Bible doesn't at all prohibit women from uh, being in leadership and being pastors and being prophets. And so how did, how did we get to this point? And so obviously I learned, I learned all the critical historical methods and how to interpret scripture. And I could read Greek and Hebrew and understand the context and then how to apply it you know, 2000 years later, but how do I love people? Um, it would be easy for me to really rail on people um, that, oh yeah, you're, what's wrong with you? You don't support women in ministry. How, how dumb can you be? It's super clear in scripture, but apparently it's not because I would say some people only race to a certain level of consciousness or spiritual maturity, and that seems to be working for them. And so I feel like my job is not to to judge, but it's to help love the person where they're at. Because I used to believe that. I used to be that person who I would now consider has a um, less mature understanding of the Bible and women in ministry, but I have to love them and maybe help them grow in that consciousness. And um, it's tricky, right? It's really easy to get angry. And I do think it does get tricky, especially when you're talking about racism. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you love people that are racist? Um, and that gets really tricky because then I think real people's lives are on the line and their safety. And so um, we at our church, we are working really, really hard on trying to um, kind of hit it head on um, white supremacy and racism. And it is, it, it can be very difficult. Wow. He's hit on so many things that we wanted to cover at you. What I'll say is this. So it sounds like, first of all, I feel like we share some commonality in the fact that we believe that you can have science and faith at the same time, which for some reason, there does seem to be a, a level of expectation that that can't be. But what I'd love for you to do is kind of take that faith aspect in terms of, I know one of the ways that you relate to people is through storytelling. So I'd love you to tell us what storytelling means, why it's important, and also use that to give us an example of one of your moments of you know, crises of conscience, for example? Yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Those are perfect questions. Yeah. So I think to me, um, this might be hard for people to hear, but humans are not rational. Maybe sporadically we become rational. And so facts literally mean nothing to, to the human. Like we say we do. We always say, hey, just give me the facts. Give me the facts. But facts mean nothing. They are a, they're kind of amoral. They kind of live in a, in a vacuum. I do believe there are things such as facts, but to a human, facts mean nothing. We take those and we put them into some sort of story, into a narrative, because we all know, even if you write, just listen to the news today, I mean, they can say, well, here are the numbers of COVID or whatever that means. And so then people will take that, those facts and they spin it into a narrative. And that's what humans, we have to do. I would say this is what makes humans different than any other animal on the planet is that we have these huge things in between our ears called brains. And they are just meaning-making machines. That is why we are different is because we just try to make meaning of all this. 
uh, because science and atoms and energy, all that stuff is moving and there's facts and science behind that, but that doesn't mean anything. It is the narrative that we attach to those things. And that's really par- uh, really powerful because now I feel like what we're having in our culture is a fight for whose narrative wins. What's the right narrative or what's a better narrative? What's a more beautiful narrative? You know, so there is this uh, narrative for me that kind of goes with with science and crisis of faith. Like I was taught that when you read the Bible, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, which uh, actually is not true. Uh, the Really the first book of the Bible, you're talking about the story, is Exodus, right? Genesis is like, is, is like the backstory. It's like you produce a movie and it goes really well. And so then they produce a prequel, you know, and so they make that. That is Genesis. Genesis is just all backstory. The real, the main story of at least the Jewish people is the Exodus in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, I don't know if, how familiar our listeners are, but if you read the Bible, Exodus is the real story. It's the narrative. And uh, people would say, well, like I read the Bible and there's all these weird things that happen that factually couldn't happen. And sure enough, I mean, I think we can, there are some errors in the Bible and people would say, oh, well, then I'm done. It's not factual. And I have to, there's a couple things you have to understand is that I think there's a difference between truth and facts. It's a it's a narrative. It, I think the Bible is telling us a true story, and some of the facts might be a little different. And also, there's this thing called anachronism, right? You can't take how you understand facts, you know, in 2020 with scientific, and you can't apply that to a book that was written 5,000 years ago and say, no, they said um, there was 50,000 people there, and you know, we did these archaeological digs, and there was maybe 5,000 people, and that's called anachronistic things. So to them, facts mean something different. When they say 50,000, they didn't actually count and mean that. Ancient uh, Middle Near, uh, the ancient Near East, they would mean 50,000. That just mean a lot. How many people were there? I don't know, a lot, like 50,000. That's hard for us. We like precision, right? We want, no, there was actually 5,232 people. So there are some of that in like with Genesis, you know, they, you know, you say, you know, God created the earth in six days. And so people think, oh, the earth is only, you know, 20,000 years old and evolution can't be true. And, um, you know, that's kind of my first crisis of faith is understanding the difference between truth and facts when it comes to the Bible. And, you know, for for me, um, evolution uh, is a wonderful, pretty explanatory um, theory. And so probably some form of evolution is probably the, the truth. And, um, you know, we our universe is whatever, what, 13 billion years old. And but I would say that there's no to me as I learned that I learned what scripture was telling us. It was telling us a story, a narrative. And so it wasn't telling us that the earth was actually created in a literal six, you know, 24 hour periods. It was saying, no, that there is a consciousness, a God and whatever whatever term you want to to explain God this this supreme consciousness that created these things and there wasn't there's an order to it um it was bringing meaning out of chaos um and to me that's the story that is what's beautiful about it is that our universe is not random even though it can seem that way is that there is a design um and there's a there's a there's an overarching story 
that is happening. And I think it's beautiful. And I want to join in that story. And so, yeah, so understanding the difference between truth and facts in the Bible, that was kind of a crisis of faith, especially as I was taught, you know, evolution was horrible. But then as I learned more about it, I'm like, no, actually, that's a, a really powerful theory. And it actually doesn't contradict the Bible at all. There's just no contradiction in my mind between science and faith. They're both trying to just explain different parts of our the human experience. Um, I love science, but science can't explain everything. I think we get in problems when religion tries to explain explain things from science and science is trying to explain kind of the the human condition. Um, You know, science does a good job of telling us, you know, how come humans don't have tails anymore? Science does a great job of explaining that, but science doesn't um, tell us, uh, yeah, why, why is, uh, how is it that I love? You know, why do I love? Um, why do I find these things interesting? Why do I love, uh, ch- you know, chocolate ice cream more than vanilla? Um, what is the meaning of life? I just don't think science can get at that. But science does do a lot of wonderful things. It gives us medicine. It gives us phones. It gives us technology. It um, tells us maybe how you know the universe you know came from all this energy. But it doesn't explain like why that why that is happening. What's the meaning of all that? I think that your point there dovetails really well into what we were looking at next in terms of what people's like Bible literacy is and or how that storytelling and that interpretation of the story has caused, you know, maybe some issues. So I guess if we start with, first of all, how did you reconcile that crisis and come to understand that the truth and the facts are not necessarily exactly the same? And then what would you say to someone who is consistently looking at the Bible as a 100% hard fact, as opposed to interpreting it, you know, as it is? Yeah, I mean, I think part of, I think having Biblical literacy is understanding um, the narrative approach to the Bible and understanding that it the Bible is not one book. Um, it's 66 books, you know, and it has hundreds of authors. And there is a, a very unique unity in it, but there's also incredible uh, diversity. I mean, it's tons of poetry. There's a little bit of history. There's like um, what we call apocalyptic writings. And it's most of the New Testament as letters, like handwritten letters to the churches. And so I think it's understanding what, um, you know, what having kind of that literacy, like literature, right? Understanding this literature. And so when we go to like Genesis, we understand that it's kind of written as a poem. It is not written as a science book. And so I guess one thing that's helpful for me is like the Bible is not always clear when it's um, being descriptive or prescriptive, right? So sometimes we don't know if it's telling us, well, this is how you should live your life, or it's maybe just explaining this is how these people live their lives. And, you know, we don't know if that's good or bad. It doesn't always say. And so that is um, that has really helped me as always to look at whatever you're reading in the Bible. Is this um, descriptive? Is this just describing how people lived? And maybe I shouldn't live that way anymore. Or is this you know prescriptive? Like yes, this is like a really healthy way to live your life. And um, another thing, I think it's helpful to know um, when the Bible is taking things um, literally. 
or when it is using um, like the words we use as, as mythology. And mythology doesn't mean fake or made up. Um, you know, we talk about myth. Um, we think of like, you know, Harry Potter. Oh, that was a great myth or Star Wars. But when I guess in literature, when you talk about myth, it doesn't, it can be fake or it can be real, but myth just means what is the, what is the meaning of, um, what is the meaning of this story? So it could be real or not. And so I think understanding those sort of things that the Bible is really all about meaning. And so if you get kind of hung up on some of the, on some of the, the details, it can really um, lead you astray. And if you don't know the context, um, and so uh, it is really. It can be really hard. I think when people first start um, learning about these things, uh, it can be really hard on their faith because I think we're taught a very simple, at least in Christianity. I call it pop Christianity in America. It can be really hard if you've been kind of raised on pop Christianity, and then to try to move deeper into it. And to me, actually, the Bible is becoming more true to me than it ever has, um, because I think it has so much more explanatory power for the human condition. And, um, you know, it doesn't, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a rated R book. It just kind of deals with how people are. And that has been really important, uh, important to me. And so I think those coming to, to realization of those things, um, can be really helpful for people. So just uh, probably just digging in and really just trying to educate yourself before you preach something is that would that be a way to stop people from taking things at face value is to I mean the deeper understanding of course but in terms of a path to that deeper understanding. Yeah, I mean if if you're looking I tell people yeah a good path obviously is to educate yourself to to read widely but I think it a lot of it happens in community and so um, that's why I'm a part of a church and you know we we would read the Bible together and kind of talk about you know what does this mean because we are meaning making machines and so I think when you you do it in community um, you have a lot better opportunity to find some nuance and especially if you're in diverse community that is just really helpful if you are reading the Bible in a diverse community, you know, economically diverse, um, theologically diverse, uh, racially diverse, that can be really, really helpful um, so that you don't kind of have these blinders on for how you read the Bible. I would say also, you know, having experienced other cultures will really help you understand the Bible because it, I mean, to read the Bible, you have to go to another culture, right? It was not written in English. It wasn't written by white people at all. I mean, this is a middle, Christianity is an Eastern religion, and that's hard for people in the West to hear. I mean, it started in the ancient Near East. So I think reading it, reading the Bible, and and, and even visiting other countries or reading it like this is not from a white American perspective. Uh, it has a lot of challenging things to say towards America. So diversity, there's so many different aspects of diversity, in my opinion, when it comes to religion, because as you just pointed out, cultural diversity, obviously, there's just vastly different interpretations based on how you are culturally raised and what you are surroundings look like. And then, of course, you bring into play the actual religious diversity in terms of different sects of religious beliefs. 
Um, you said you were brought up uh, in Baptist. Yes. There's just several different forms of that religion that people would adopt in terms of their actual practice. So it's just, it's amazing how I can you imagine, I can't imagine being able to get a diverse group of people together from different cultures and different religious backgrounds who have different beliefs, but still have a strong belief in a higher power and just round table. I mean, how amazing would that be? Yeah, it's, you know, our, our church is, is pretty small, but it is, it is very fun and fascinating to be, uh, to be a part of. So uh, I'm no longer a Baptist. I'm part of the uh, evangelical covenant. Um, and so that was a bunch of Swedish immigrants um, that were coming to the U.S. And so, in fact, we still have we will still read uh, scripture in Swedish on some mornings. We have people that are fluent and that, uh, that immigrated from from Sweden and where we live kind of in the suburbs of Chicago, pretty diverse. Um, and so, you know, we'll read my co-pastor uh, who was with me, uh, Pastor Cheryl Lynn. Uh, she's Colombian. And so, you know, we will do we'll do many, many things bilingually. And that it has been very helpful. I and mean, we have some people that are of, you know, Baha'i faith, um, lots of, in Chicagoland, most people are kind of maybe raised Catholic, which is kind of very different than Protestantism. And so we kind of have uh, the Catholic and Protestant dynamic. And obviously Protestants, they protested the Catholic church, right, in the 1500s, and they never stopped protesting. So there's one million uh, Protestant denominations. Um, so we have that. Um, and it, it is, it is good. We, um, also, uh, there is a seminary, the seminary I went to North Park started a program. We have the largest state prison, like, uh, for Illinois, kind of in our backyard, just a few miles from our church. And they started a seminary program inside of Stateville. And so I would go once a month to visit, uh, the guys that are there and, you know, they will, we will oftentimes have them write our prayers for us, the guys that are, that are in Stateville. And so, yeah, all those, um, Bible verses about being in prison and incarcerated, that really didn't mean much to me until I started going into the prisons and learning about uh, a lot of the the injustice in our uh, our prison system, you know, and learning about how it's for profit and um, yeah, just a lot a lot of the kind of inherent racism uh, in our in our justice system. But yeah, then to to hear these guys and just their faith and how they understand and how they interpret scripture, uh, it has really opened my eyes and, and changed me uh, in some pretty significant ways. And then obviously being with a lot of our, we have a uh, pretty big ESL program and um, learning to, um, trying to learn Spanish. I'm pretty horrible at it. I can actually sing Spanish a lot better than I can speak it. Uh, so we'll sing many worship songs in Spanish and we'll do a lot of our liturgy bilingually. But then, yeah, like to me, the immigration issue, um, you know, as a, a white man, you know, I just thought, well, it's illegal, right? You can't come here illegally. But then you start meeting people. And yeah, to me, having those relationships, like, you know, then I had to completely change my thinking, my theology, my stances on laws, and have become very pro-immigration. And then I saw that all in the Bible. The Bible is a complete story of the migration of people, right? Jesus was he was a refugee, you know? And so how could I not welcome refugees when 
you know, Jesus himself was a refugee. And so I do think reading the Bible and having those relationships uh, in diversity is really, really powerful. You know, if you are in a monoculture, I would say you got to get out or you got to change it. You know, they, the, they say that the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning when everyone's going to church. And that is, to me, that is evil. I want to do everything that I can to to not do that. And, you know, the whole scripture is about all tribes, all nations, all people, all tongues are, are worshiping God. And so we have this, the tons of the uh, biblical narrative is about this kind of these race relationships between Jews and Gentiles and how that works out. But yeah, so we we do our best. We are trying to hit uh, kind of racism head on in our church. Um, we're doing kind of a, a Bible study through a book called Rediscipling the White Church. You know, we've read Wide Awake together. Um, we've read a book called Rethinking Incarceration. And so we, we are trying to hit these things head on. And it is not without pain. I'll tell you, I mean, we are predominantly white church, but we have been trying to take those steps to become much more diverse and not, not for, and it is strange too. I feel like there's like the diversity maybe from the the public sphere, but to me, there's this diversity that comes from, from Christianity, from, from the Bible. And um, we are definitely trying to, to reflect the kingdom of God more accurately and it is a it is a diverse tribe, and not because we think it's cool, but the Bible says that there's actually something more beautiful about that. There's something more powerful to live in a diverse community, and so that's what we're trying to do. Um, some days I feel like we're doing a great job; other days, not so much. But um, we are working uh, on trying to be a very diverse, diverse um, worshiping community. Well, it sounds like. A work in progress. And I will be honest, you've said so many things that have kind of blown my mind right now. I know that Heather and I had literally the same eye-raising moment when you said there's a million sects in Protestant. So I was like, wow. So here I'm trying to put my thoughts together in a way that is concise. But when you said you're part of an evangelical you know, church and then went into everything that you said that you're doing, it's literally the antithesis of what I see. And how do people react to that, first of all? And how do you go about changing their mindset? And then not only that, I'm just going to piggyback it and you can answer however you want. When you have things like the prosperity gospel that are part of the evangelical community and, you know, the division and there's a gigantic division generally between white evangelicals and people of color that are in evangelicals, what kind of doctrine or how are you trying to get your congregation to employ their belief systems? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, that's. That's big. It is a work in progress. And I can tell you what, you know, what we are doing. Again, I am trying to, I think the Bible is sufficient to really deal with all these kind of head on, um, all the all these issues. And so obviously I preach every Sunday and, and I'm preaching from the Bible. And I feel like it is just there all the time. I mean, sometimes it's, it's like right in your face. Other times it's a little more subtle. But I think that um, there is this tendency, it's in the biblical story, and I even find it in my own heart. So there's two words I want to share with you. There's blessing and there's favoritism. And those, there's a 
thin, thin line between those two. And so I think what happens is, um, you know, the the Jewish people, when they were kind of chosen by God, God said, I will make you a blessing, but that is so you can be a blessing to all the nations. And that never really happened because what they interpreted, they'd be like, oh, we're special. We're, we're the favorites. And they were never able to be a blessing to other people. And so I, I think I'm always trying to um, move people away from favoritism or from privilege because I see that's exactly what uh, what Jesus did. You know, he said um, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant. And so right here is Jesus, who we believe is like God incarnate, the most powerful being in the universe. But he gave all that up to come to earth and to serve and to love people and he ended up giving his, his life. Um, and to me, that's the highest calling is, are you willing to give up your power to serve others? And so to me, it's a lot of power dynamics. And when you think you're a favorite, you just try to collect as much power and you feel threatened um, if that, if someone is, if you're going to lose power, you feel threatened. Jesus, you know, the most powerful person showed, well, no, I'll give up all my power. I've come to serve and and uh, I'll lay down my life for other people. And so it's not having power over, it's having power for. And so I feel like whatever power that I have, I am just trying to, you know, to use that to to help people and, and to love people. And so I think preaching that. And I think really just being in relationship with people. And yeah, I disagree with all sorts of stuff. And man, we get into political things at my church, you know, and people voting this way and that way. But at the end of the day, like we have decided there's something more important about being in relationship than than breaking over over these things. And so I think we we just kind of decided that the biblical narrative is compelling enough that we can deal with these really, really hard things. And um, our faith is not so weak that it can't handle being challenged or having new information um, thrown at it. And so I would say it's a lifelong process, but that process happens really well if you're in community. And so I yeah, I don't know if, yeah, there, I don't think there's any silver bullet for this. I think it is just a long, faithful traje- trajectory and willing to be in community and working on diversity, willing to give up any power or privilege that you have to, to love other people. And I think that wins the day. I think I'm like, Nina, I'm like taking it all in. So just trying to navigate to the next step just because this is all this is all amazing um and i as same with what nina said is i'm hearing a lot of things and you know this has happened with several of ours and it's kind of our intent is really to open the door to a more open conversation that maybe we haven't had and broadcast it to people who may have also not had it because we want to open our minds a little bit because i will tell you 100% honestly, I have always struggled with religion. And I've always been told, but you're relating it to the people. And it's true. And it's it's true that it's the it's the people that have been in a power play, or that I have had people use religion as almost like weaponize it essentially against me, I'm not good enough for this reason or that reason, or, you know, the whole you're going to hell because you're not this, this or this, rather than again, as you mentioned, to begin with, accept someone where they are now, and be that 
be that person that can have the conversation so that potentially that can move them in a better direction. So first of all, I love all of that. So that's fantastic. Um, you know, we have talked, you mentioned earlier, you, you listened to some of our episodes, uh, we did touch on a lot of trauma. Mm. And is that something that you you deal with um, within your organization, trauma-informed ministry? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of came late to kind of the understanding and conversation around uh, trauma. And so for me, how I was introduced to it was actually through through my youngest son, Anthony. So my wife and I, um, you know, we had two biological children and my wife was really, really sick. She had, yeah, she had some serious problems. And so we were unable to have any more children. And that was really, really painful. But then we both kind of felt um, that, you know, we had room in our minivan, we had room in our house, we had room in our hearts, you know, for another kid, but we just couldn't birth one. And so, you know, we had thought about adoption and, you know, we kind of went to some classes that seemed really scary and hard. But then um, we kind of came to this together. It was really kind of like a miraculous story, but we decided we were going to do foster care. And so we didn't know if we were going to adopt. We just thought, hey, there's kids in our backyard that need a healthy home. And so that is how we can show love to our community. We'll just take in these kids. And so um, we, yeah, we got our, our first foster son. He was, his name was Anthony. He was four years old. And then uh, he was unable to to go back to his parents. And so um, we just kind of made a, a decision. Hey, if a kid comes into our home through foster care, they will never have to leave. So the goal of foster care is to just love on the kids until their parents get healthy so they can go home. But if that couldn't happen, we just said, well, if a kid comes into our home and they can't go to their back to their home, then they would never have to leave our home. So our very first try at this, we thought we'd get lots of practice. We thought we'd have you know kids come living with us for a few months and love on them and send them back. But it's just our first kid, um, Anthony. He was unable, his parents were unable to get healthy. And so the, the state had asked us if we were open for adoption. And we said, well, of course. And so then we were able to adopt Anthony. And so that was our kind of our, our journey into learning about trauma. And so, you know, he was not abused in what normal people would think, but he was neglected, which is a form of abuse. And so, you know, by he moved in with us when he was four. We were his fifth home in four years of life, which is um extremely traumatic. And so uh, obviously we we got all the training and we started reading books and yeah, trauma. Um, so if, if your listeners like, like a book, there's a couple of them, but um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kook, I think it is. He's a, um, that one was really powerful, how trauma stays in your body. Um, your body remembers that. And actually, you know, and, and all the therapies that we've gone through learning that how trauma actually changes your brain. And so, you know, just learning with our son that he's always kind of stuck in fight, flight or freeze mode. He rarely feels safe, you know, and that's really hard to use rational thought when you're stuck in your, you know, the, the back of your brain, you know, the, the reptilian brain is not using its prefrontal, you know, cortex. Um, and so, 
then I realized, um, you know, when you're anytime you're dealing with people like in ministry, like as a pastor, right, I get to be with people on the most amazing days of their life, right? When they're getting married and baptized or they get a promotion, they call their pastor and I get to be there and it's like amazing. But I'm also called on the worst days of people's lives, right? When someone dies, um, when there's a divorce, um, and it is it is crazy. But there's always this there's this conflict, and so I get called into a lot of conflict. And as I begin to learn about trauma, I realized that most of my conflict um, had to do with two things: either trauma, so trauma is making people act in ways that are non-resourceful, and then also mental illness. That I just feel like that was the one thing I would complain about my seminary education. Who cares that I know Greek or Hebrew? You need to teach me about trauma and about mental illness because honestly, when it comes down to it, I'm not a trained therapist. But here's the thing: I'm cheap and I'm free, right? So, so I am basically a free therapist, you know, to people in our church and in our community because either there's the stigma of going to see a therapist or they don't know what to do, and so I just become that person. Obviously. If there's really intense situations, I, I also have a, uh, I refer people, you know, to get professional help. But trauma, I would say um, that trauma is probably our number one health crisis. Um, our social health crisis is probably undiagnosed trauma, and it just perpetuates, I think, a lot of things that are happening. And even as I think about, you know, the the riots and the Black Lives Matter movements, you know, so. Obviously, a lot of white people are like super ticked off with the riots and the looting. And I would say, yeah, that's really unfortunate. That doesn't help. But if you look at it through the trauma lens, well, what do you expect traumatized people to do when they're feeling threatened and traumatized? You break stuff, right? That's exactly what my son does. When he's frustrated with the littlest things, you know, when we ask him, brush your teeth, right? We're trying to be good parents. It's a really good idea to clean your teeth. And then he'll, you know, he, he will feel threatened by that. And, you know, he'll, he'll throw things or, or hit himself. Um, and that's a trauma response. And so to me, I would say, see that a lot of this looting, um, it's not, it's not resourceful, it's not helpful, but what else do traumatized people do? If you're not feeling safe and you're not feeling heard, you feel like there's no way out, then yeah, you, you break stuff. Um, so to me, it's, it's trauma. And then like the Bible itself was written out of trauma. I would say you can't understand the Bible um, without being uh, trauma informed because like I said, the first book of the Bible, the main story is Exodus. That's a story of Hebrew slaves, right? They were slaves for 400 years. That is traumatic, right? That is generation after generation of trauma. Yeah. So the, the Bible is written from a minority traumatized enslaved people. It happens again in the New Testament, right? They weren't necessarily slaves, but you know they were kind of being oppressed by, by the Romans. So the Bible really is written for traumatized people. And so someone like me, you know, just a white American male, I have a harder time accessing the Bible than other people because I've just not experienced a lot of trauma in my life. And so I have to do a lot extra work to to get at it because really I would feel, um, I don't know if you guys have read the Bible, but you know, in Exodus, remember it was the Pharaoh that enslaved all the all the Hebrews, but really I have probably more in common with uh, Egyptian pharaohs uh, than I do Hebrew slaves. 
Um, and so to me, it's, I have to listen to people who, who have been through trauma or who the system is not working for, right? The system works for me. It just does. I wish it were different, but in America in 2020, the system is really kind of rigged to work really well for me. And I don't have to question it. Life is fine for me. And so I have to listen to people on the margins, people who have been traumatized. I have to read people on the margins. I have to read authors um, that are, have been on the margins and I need to do a better job of listening. And so, um, yeah, the the Bible really is good news for traumatized people. It's really painful news for people in power. That was incredible in terms of, I I have read the Bible several times, and one of my fire starter personality things is I do think it's entertaining. I'm not saying it's right, but I do think it's entertaining to um, put the Bible back in people's faces who claim to be so in tune with it and who are not. But I haven't thought about it really from the perspective that you just presented. I know that today I did think that we felt like we're going through the 10 plagues right now. And I was just equating it to those 10 plagues. You have to think about how much trauma had to be inflicted upon the Egyptians for them to release the Israelites. It had to be significant and it had to be sustained. And for them to actually be able to conceptualize that they didn't want to go through that any longer. That was really, that was great, Jake. Uh, I don't, I'm curious to what Heather thinks about that. Um, I don't have any, I don't have any thoughts on the 10 plagues. Is that what you're asking? Commentary on. <laughs> I, you know, we're talking we're talking on religion. I come from a perspective of very, very limited knowledge. Um, when I was younger, I do remember a couple times being in Sunday school, but I could not tell you. I know where it was, but I don't know what it was. And then we were Jehovah's Witnesses, and that in and of itself was um, an interesting time because. It was a impactful time of my life and it kind of shot me in the wrong direction of not trusting anything religion related. And again, I acknowledge when I say that out loud that I am attributing a group of people or people in general to a whole concept, uh, but that's just been my view and I've, I've had a hard time changing it uh, probably because I just haven't worked on it. So anyways, I don't have any. I don't have any thoughts on the 10 plagues. Uh, but I think everything you said is fantastic. Um, and I think it's really important for people to I, maybe think more like you do and, and and stop taking these one one liners or these tiny little things and using them against and rather than using them against, using them to uplift. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's amazing what um, spiritual trauma you can do by just taking verses out of context. And I would say pop Christianity, you know, in America is uh, notorious for doing that. And so, yeah, I, that's why I really feel that my task uh, as a pastor is to to help people throw out all of that bathwater. There's just so much bad that has happened, you know, in the name of, you know, religion or Christianity. But at its heart, there is something really, really, there is something really beautiful and really powerful I think opens people up to greater consciousness. And, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to do that. Some days I feel like I'm doing a good job. Other times, you know, not so much. And yeah, there are times when I feel like 
it's a lost cause, you know, like you just need to scrap the whole thing and start over. But, you know, I just keep coming back to these, these core tenets and these truths. And, and, and I think the Bible really, when it's read correctly in diverse community, uh, can be really powerful and helpful. But yeah, I, ultimately it's about, it's about, I think, growing your capacity to love people and people who are different than you. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's that, that love that will win the day. I agree. And I think, I, I do. And I think, you know, and that's part of what we love to do here is just amplify voices that don't get an opportunity to be amplified as much. And because, you know, it does say that we'll know you by your fruits. And so having good ambassadors being held up is important. As a result, this is part of the discussion that we like to have because people don't want to talk about religion because of all the stigmatization that other people put upon each other. And it's unhealthy and it's, and it's not what it's about. And if you're going back to the golden rule or just the two laws that Jesus did apply, it was about, you know, putting God first and also putting, treating other people as you would yourself. And all that comes back to us individually and not projecting whatever we feel onto other people. And I think that matters. So I want to take an opportunity to ask you then, you know, what thought process you could share or action steps that you would ask of the audience since you have an opportunity to do so. I would say if you get a chance to travel internationally, I would say that has been one of the most uh, powerful things in my life. And, um, you know, I did that really early on in my life. I mean, this was like uh, pre 9-11. This was between my junior and senior year of high school. And my parents sent me to Trinidad, West Indies, my brother and I and one other high school friend by ourselves, put us on an international plane by ourselves. I spent a month in another country working in an orphanage in Trinidad, you know, just learning learning that, yeah, the way that we see the world, you know, it's not necessarily wrong, but there's just so, there's just so much more to, to life and humanity. And just having that, you know, that um, it increases emotional intelligence and intercultural competency. So putting yourself in situations where you are a minority is pretty good. And maybe I'm speaking maybe to, to, to white people in particular, but you know, just putting yourself in other cultures, even if you can't leave the United States, um, putting yourself in a place where you uh, are not in the majority and kind of learning to live in that tension and to be to be changed. And also food around the world is so good. You know, it's so fun. I love traveling. Um, one of my best experiences was uh, I went to Spain about four years ago and I hiked, started in France and hiked the Camino de Santiago. Uh, it was about a thousand kilometers. I was hiking about 20 miles a day, you know, meeting people from all over the world. And um, you would just have, you know, dinner and wine at night. And it was like, yeah, you were, you were, truly brothers and sisters, you know, people from all over the world and, you know, trying to find a language we could both speak um, when people would translate for us and yeah, eating food. 
um, in wine, it was very much like communion, which I think is like the, a beautiful picture of humanity. I think it should be a requirement for any politician. They first have to spend a month on the Camino to uh, just to have a much healthier perspective on life and humanity and communion. And uh, I think the world would be a more beautiful place. Love it. And we'll put the um, the Body Keeps score. We'll put the link uh, for that book in the show notes too. Great. Where can people find you online? Yeah, um, they could just Google my name. I'm really just on Facebook and Instagram, Jason, Jake Bradley, those places. And Church of the Good Shepherd is the church that I pastor in Joliet, Illinois. And so you can hear, you know, our sermons and, and kind of things that we do. So Church of the Good Shepherd and Jason, Jake Bradley at, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I don't know. Speaking from myself, I will say I am the person that doesn't like to have religious conversations because they've always um, feel like they've always bit me because I'm a very inquisitive. I ask a lot of questions and I've always gotten a lot of backlash. Like people are thinking I'm questioning them. And so being, so this, these conversations are very uncomfortable for me, um, but I'm getting better at them. And I, and I'm very happy about that. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on ladies. This was wonderful. Wow, wow, wow. So Jake dropped some seriously good insight here today. If there was one common theme, it is to seek out knowledge and meet people where they are, not where you think they should be. This week's call to action is to check out the book, The Body Keeps the Score. We'll link that in the show notes for you. If you're not a book fan or you're not a reader, head over to Facebook and let us know what you thought. We'd love to hear your feedback and all of your stories as well. As a reminder, the opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We do encourage you to do your own research, come to your own fact-based conclusions. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you were inspired to think more deeply. Don't miss next week's Firestarter, where we'll be talking all things food. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out by email, info at diversityonfire.com, or leave us a voice note. The link for that can be found in the show notes. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And if you found value in today's episode, head on over to iTunes or Spotify and leave us a five-star review and comment. It really does help more people find our show. And please, share with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. It's kind of like a zoo, right? I mean, anytime you're working with people... (laughs) 